You're listening to Wide Margins, Episode 51, Needy Worship. In this episode, I want to share with you a story that goes back to my days when I went to Russia just about every year. I've made seven or eight trips to Russia starting in the late 90s, and my last trip was in 2007. When my daughter turned two, I just got to the point where I couldn't bear to be away from home as long as it took to to go there. When you go to a place like Russia, it's important that you stay for a while because the airfare is very expensive, and it takes such a long time to get out there. If you're not careful and you don't plan a long enough trip, you spend more time in the air traveling than you do with boots on the ground. So we would go for a long period of time. My first few trips were solely for the purpose of teaching in a preacher training school in Siktivkar, Russia, in the north part of the country, in the Komi region. Uh, There were several students who would go to school there back in those days, which required a pair of teachers to come for a three-week term and teach on a particular subject like the Book of Corinthians or Christian Evidences or something like that. And I was able to go on those trips with my dad, which was great because it gave us time to be together and to to bond a little bit and to have some experiences together, and, and we didn't have to be alone in that. And so I made several trips doing that, and one thing led to the other, and opportunities started coming up to do evangelistic work in other parts of Russia. And you know how things go. You don't plan them the way they work out, and you find yourself in places with people in situations you never would have imagined. That's exactly how my evangelistic experiences in Russia went. I wouldn't say I was very good at it or that I had a whole lot of successes, but I certainly had a lot of interesting experiences. One thing led to another so that I wound up doing a lot of evangelistic work in a small farming village in the south of Russia, in the Volgograd region, called Antipovka. Antipovka was a tiny place, and if you planned missions like from beginning to end, you would never have picked this as a strategic place to do mission work. In fact, if I had to do it over again, I probably would not have chosen to do work in Antipovka, but that's just how things worked out. I had a connection to somebody who was working there. There were several Christians in that place. There was an opportunity to establish a congregation there. So we went and we started there with intentions of taking what we learned there into other places. Unfortunately, it just never worked out the way that we planned it to, to work. But as I said, I had a lot of experiences there. And I wouldn't consider anything that we did to have been a loss. I think that we were able to help in a small way. And Tipovka had about 3,500 people living in that village when we went. It was on the banks of the Volga River, and going there was kind of like going back in time. There were very few cars. There wasn't a whole lot of indoor plumbing. I would venture to say that more than half of the homes had outhouses for toilets and kitchens were separate from the house because they caught on fire a lot and you didn't want to be uh, you didn't want everything destroyed when your kitchen burned down uh, 
there were a lot of other things, you know, of course, a lot of farm animals just roaming around, and uh, it was very picturesque, too. It was a beautiful place, unlike any place I've ever visited before or since. Most importantly, there were a group of Christians living there, and they didn't have a lot of opportunities to hear preaching and to go out, so we we started working there and set a preacher to come in and go there regularly and conduct worship services. It was in Antipica that I met a strange little woman named Luba. Luba was, she was one of the most interesting people I've ever met. It was clear from looking at her that she had led a very hard, difficult life. And there were stories going around about her. I'm not sure if they were true, but they were certainly very interesting stories. And looking at her, you could believe them. Uh, one, one story said that her daughter got into some kind of trouble. I don't know what it was. And Luba didn't want to didn't want her daughter to, to get into trouble. She couldn't bear the thought of her daughter going to prison, and so she lied to the authorities, and she was caught in that lie, and according to the story, she and her daughter both were sent to a Siberian work camp where they spent several years in forced labor. Uh, she returned from that different from the way that she was before she went. I have no idea how she was before she got into that trouble. Anyway, I met her after those experiences, and she was not a stable person. In fact, just being quite honest with you, uh, Luba could be a bit of a troublemaker. She was always stirring the pot. You know, She always had a problem with someone or something, and she was always misunderstanding people's motives and intentions. Uh, she was making accusations that were unfair, and it got to where a lot of my trips there were all about trying to arbitrate some argument between Luba and one of the other Christians there in Antipovka. So it was a distraction. It was very hard sometimes to deal with her, but you learned that she had problems, that you know, she was scarred, that she truly, sincerely misunderstood what was going on, and she wasn't intentionally trying to be a distraction or to cause trouble. Her sense of justice was off, and she often felt that people weren't getting what they deserved, and, and you had to be patient with her and try to take time to explain what was going on. Another story that will kind of give you an idea of who Luba was and what her life was like I saw her house one time and noticed that behind her house there was a pen that was full of dogs. Now this isn't like you would see at a dog breeder's house where you're looking at pedigreed dogs for sale, all the same breed or something. This is dogs of every stripe and color, mutts and all kinds of animals that were clearly taken in as strays. And when I saw that, I thought the same thing that I would think seeing a pen full of dogs in America, where I live. Uh, you know, this is a person who really loves animals. She can't bear to see strays running around going hungry, so she's taking them in to be kind. Maybe she's looking for a home for them or something like that. That's what I thought. But 
that is not what was going on. I, I, I would ask about the dogs because there was clearly something going on there. And whenever I asked, I could see something in the eyes of the people I asked about it that told me there was something behind these dogs that would be very interesting if I could find it out. So I kept pressing, and I could tell one person in particular that knew what the deal was didn't want to tell me what it was, but I kept pressing him, what's going on? What's the deal with Luba and her pen full of dogs? And finally he said, look, she eats the dogs. She eats the dogs. I, you know, I expected maybe a lot of answers, but I didn't see that one coming. But yeah, she ate dogs. And you have to remember that there's a lot of poverty in the world that we just can't even imagine. We have it so well that our poor do a lot better than most people in the world. Okay, so in Antipovka, Luba lived as one of the poorest in a very poor village. And if she didn't capture dogs and eat them, who knows, she might have starved to death. And so that was her way of getting by. She couldn't find employment. She didn't have any relatives who could support her. She was just on her own out there. And so that was one of her survival techniques, to capture dogs and, and eat them, I guess. Maybe she had some good recipes. Who knows? Um, anyway, that kind of gives you an idea of who she was. Now, she could be very funny. She was very animated. She had this deep voice which was kind of funny because she was so small. Uh, she had this. She would sing bass when the church would sing together, and there were a lot of things about her that you could enjoy as well. She was a person who left an impression. Once once you met her, you'd never forget her, and I haven't forgotten her, even though I have no idea what has become of her. Now, the reason I set all of that up is I want to tell you a story about something that happened in a worship service in which I was sitting by Luba one Sunday morning when we were in Antipovka, Russia. It was an outdoor worship service. Uh, the Christians weren't worshiping in a building at the time. We were just sitting on little benches outside under an arbor of some kind, I remember, and it was a beautiful day. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to be in a place where there's no background noise. It was almost like that, that day. I just remember how quiet and serene and peaceful it was. If you go outside today, you're going to hear traffic on the highway, cars running, engines going, lawnmowers, airplanes flying through the sky, air conditioning units buzzing in the background. It's just impossible to find true peace and quiet anywhere these days unless you go way far out. But here we were in this faraway place on the banks of one of the largest rivers in the world. And maybe occasionally you'd hear a car driving by, but very rarely. Other than that, there was no sound but birds in the trees and the wind blowing through the leaves, it was just peaceful, it was quiet, it was one of the most 
serene moments of my life. We sang together, we had prayer, read scripture, and then the Lord's Supper was passed. Now, like many of you who are listening to this, I believe that Christians ought to take the Lord's Supper every first day of the week. I think that's what the Bible teaches. It's obvious that's what the early Christians did, and I believe that we should worship the way Christians worshiped under apostolic direction that has been revealed to us through the New Testament. So every first day of the week, I take the Lord's Supper. I eat the unleavened bread, which represents the body of the Lord. I I drink the fruit of the vine that represents his blood. But there's a challenge in that, right? And I think the reason why some religious groups choose to take the Lord's Supper less frequently is because they're afraid of it becoming routine. And if we're honest, those of us who follow the biblical pattern are guilty of making it routine, of not putting enough meaning into it, of letting our minds wander because it's so familiar. And that's the danger of the familiar. It's a good reminder, but but oftentimes it can become routine. And worship should never be routine. And so I've struggled with that that morning as I did, as I do every Sunday, just trying to focus. And that particular day, it was a little easier because I was in a new place. I was worshiping outside, which is something I wasn't accompanied, uh, accustomed to doing. We were singing songs with Russians. They were singing their language while we were singing ours. It was a, a different situation. So it was a little easier to focus my mind but when I saw the way Luba took the Lord's Supper, it, it opened my eyes to what meaningful worship really is. I took the Lord's Supper, took the unleavened bread, ate it, passed it to Luba. And then she, she took the unleavened bread and she paused and lifted her face to heaven with her eyes closed and tears streamed down her cheeks as she took the unleavened bread to her lips and kissed it before putting it into her mouth and then she bowed her head very sincerely and reverently and said a quiet prayer to the Lord. And I noticed that. And I saw, what I saw there was someone who had a great need she knew could only be fulfilled by Jesus Christ. I saw in her a neediness that most of us have forgotten that we all have. And an acknowledgement that only Christ can satisfy that need. And that has stuck with me ever since. When I think of Luba, the first thing that I, I think of is that. Not eating dogs or where she lived or how poor she was or how hard her life was or the troublemaking the funny things that she could do, the first thing that I think of is her 
knowledge of her own neediness and her acknowledgement that the cross is the only thing that could satisfy it and how all of that came together in her worship. Now, let's think about our culture here in America. We have neediness in worship for sure, but not not the kind that I saw in Luba that day in Russia. We have a consumer culture in religion today that's that has already gotten out of control. People are churches are competing with one another now to have the best music, the most entertaining sermons, the perfect lighting and sound, the most convenient childcare services, basically just to have the most entertaining experience of all the churches in the surrounding area. And Christians go from church to church shopping around for the best experience and the one that suits them the best. And they may drive a long ways from their own community to a church in another community and explain that saying, well, you know, the church that's two miles down from my house just wasn't a good fit. This suits my needs a lot better. They have the services for my children that I'm looking for and the kind of music that I like. And I like that preacher a lot. He he seems to have a great personality. He seems to be very friendly and his family is beautiful and so on. That's what we've all bought into, really, if we're being quite honest. That's the landscape of religion in America today. And recently, an important leader in the evangelical movement, Matt Chandler, expressed concern that his church and other evangelical churches all over America are losing their focus. And what he said in his sermon to his church one day was reported in an article that I want to share with you. And What he said is good, but it's also important to know that Matt Chandler is a leader in this consumer religious movement. I'm not saying that he set out to make it that way, but he certainly made use of it, and his church is a part of it. He preaches for the Village Church in Texas. It has 14,000 members spread over five different campuses. Here's what he said in a sermon delivered recently. At this recording, it was less than a month ago. He said, you and I are so overstimulated, you and I are so overwhelmed with fast-paced, energized entertainment that we've developed a real, idealized sense of life with a real low pain tolerance. The church herself is no longer about discipleship, no longer about being shaped, no longer is it about being formed, it's about being entertained in the gathering. He refers to this culture as an arena culture that expects, he says, to be put together when we arrive. And he warns that far too many people are interested in the more external elements of ministry, such as impressive light shows and worship bands, instead of actually growing the kingdom of God. Now, I appreciate what he's saying here, and I think that he's right, that we've got this consumer culture in religion today. It's started, it started in our economy. As Americans, we've come to the point where We don't produce, we don't contribute. In our economy, what we're all about is consuming. We're the biggest consumers in the world. And that has translated over into our religion. We come to church not to produce, not to contribute, not to be formed. 
but just to eat it all up. And while it's probably worse than it's ever been in history, it's not a new phenomenon. In fact, you can see Paul expressing similar warnings in the letter to the Galatians, where he says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 15, If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. His argument is really plain there. Consumer religion cannibalizes itself to extinction. If you set up an atmosphere in religion in which everyone is there just to consume resources instead of contribute and be formed and be changed, then eventually it's going to disappear because how can you have anything left when everybody is there to be served instead of to serve? It just doesn't make any sense. You can logically see how this works out. So we are needy in worship today, but not in the right way. We are needy for things that have no uh, supply. We come wanting more and more and more, and we're facing, we're, we're asking for replenishment from resources that are not being replenished. There's just not enough, and it's not even the things that we truly need. We're replacing our needs for once. Meanwhile, we're dying by bread alone, if you want to look at it that way. I think the solution to all of this is the neediness of Luba. She realized that she was lost without Christ. She came to worship looking for the cross. She was on a quest for the shed blood. She came to church for him. She she didn't come desiring friends, but the friend through whom all the best relationships are made. She didn't come looking for an experience. She carried the experience with her. She had spiritual depth. Something had actually happened in her that she carried around with her everywhere that she went. Her worship was meaningful because she had the right need. She wasn't looking for childcare or a comfortable worship situation or climate control, or uh, music, or lighting, and sound, or entertaining preaching. She wasn't looking for any of that. She was just looking for the cross. And in doing that, she was looking for something that had a solution, that had a supply. She was coming to church to find that which the church could supply. If you're coming to church to look for the most entertaining experience, you're going to build up a toleration to whatever entertainment level there is, and it's like a drug, an addiction. You're going to want more and more and more until it will be impossible to satisfy your need. But if you're coming looking for the cross, for something to satisfy the deepest needs of your soul, that's what church can give you. That's what the cross can give you. That's exactly what the psalmist discovered in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He found satisfaction in the Lord, but that doesn't mean absolutely every need was fulfilled by him, just 
the deepest needs, the most meaningful needs, the most important ones, his spiritual needs, they were satisfied in the Lord. Paul told the same thing to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, when he said, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. That's the solution to the problem that we've got. Neediness for the right thing. Being needy in worship in and of itself is not a bad thing, but when we think that our wants are our needs and we're in control of deciding what we really need, it gets all out of shape and eventually we're going down a path of self-destruction. If, however, we pay attention to what God says our needs are and see that we're hollowed out as people without the cross and the blood of Jesus, then, and only then, will we find satisfaction in our worship. Just something to think about today on Wide Margins. We'll have other thoughts coming soon in the next episodes.